fantastic headline from the Morristown, New Jersey Daily Record. Blobs found in Indiana. Blobs found in Indian Lake. Blobs found in Indian Lake. I've dated a few blobs in my time. Blobs found in Indian Lake. Let me see what that's about. For gosh sakes, I don't hate to think of the idea of blobs swimming around in Indian Lake. Is there? Do you ever hear of Indian Lake in Jersey? Didn't either. It's in Denville Township, wherever that is. And uh, it's a serious situation. The mystery of the blobs in Indian Lake remains a mystery. Residents discovered the strange creatures, if creatures they be, in the lake last Friday, and theories have been pouring in ever since. Quote, it's a colony of bacteria. Quote, it's frog's eggs. Quote, it's related to a sponge. Uh, Mrs. Lorraine Caruso, resident biologist, said last night she believes the blobs to be of animal origin, probably frog legs. <laughs> oh, good old Jersey. I'll tell you, never stops. Blobs. Uh, you know, uh, speaking of uh, things that never stop I, and headlines, uh, I don't know whether you ever see, uh, you know, these little, these these papers that are, are papers that deal in nothing but national scandals, you know, stuff like uh, uh, Liz's Great Night Out from uh, Richard Burton. You've seen that, uh, you know, these National Enquirer type things. A man slays seven, makes soap of bodies. You've seen those great deadlines, you know. Well, I saw one the other day. I'm sitting in the in the bus, you know, usually it's just about these uh, movie stars. You know, Raquel Welch tells Suzanne Pochette to go to hell. Fantastic picture story inside. Exclusive, exclusive. Well, uh, I'm sitting in the Fifth Avenue bus, see, and uh, we're going, we're heading along there, you know, and everything's there. Everybody's in and out. I, I love to ride that bus. Which I, you know, I just get in it just to ride it. You ever ride a bus just to ride a bus, Al? I don't think you're that type. No, no. <laughs> no, your engineers are too official. But I'm uh, sitting in this bus, see, and there's this guy ahead of me. So he's squatting down there. He's got this hat on. There are certain people who wear hats. The, the, the male hat, I, I don't want to get to too deeply involved in that tonight, but uh, uh, you remember when men used to actually wear hats? And you turn on certain movies, it just, it's just like uh, almost every movie that was made prior to about 1960, and all the guys are running around with these felt hats on. There's a whole crowd of them. Richard Widmark is always wearing one of those hats. He's got a hat. And you know who wears them today? You see him all the time on television is Carl Malden. Carl Malden has always got one of these felt hats on. <laughs> and I don't know, you know, I don't know anybody who wears those hats, but they always wear them in the movies. And, and a suit. Suit and a hat. No matter what the climate is, the guy's got a dark, looks like a black or a brown suit. Uh, the climate movie Miami or whatever the movie is. But the... the the hat, the, the, one of the ugliest things I think ever created by the mind of man is that gray felt, curious-looking hat. You've seen them, Jerry, in movies, obviously. And I'm delighted to report they have disappeared, except on the head of Carl Malden, uh, who, uh, who always wears them on, on his television show. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, see, this guy's got one of these hats, you know, and he's squatting down there in front of me. And he's chewing away on what looks like the butt end of a pastrami sandwich. He's a real New Yorker. And uh, he's reading what looks like the National Enquirer, one of those magazines, Midnight, you know, great big black headlines. And the headline says, Man has to accept the fact that he is growing extinct. 
So what the hell is this? Now, that, I've not seen anything in the Times about that, and they print all the news that's fit to print. My God, if we're growing extinct, that should be reported. That's even more important than Watergate. Do you agree? I mean, it's all academic, all this stuff. I mean, that we're going through if, if we're growing extinct. So uh, I was trying to read over this guy's shoulder, you know, about this man is growing extinct. It's holy smokes. Man is growing extinct. And so he got up to leave. Down on 34th Street scene, he got up and he starts to squat his way down towards the, towards the door. There's a lot of people, so I get up and I'm squatting my way down towards the door because I want to see more about this scene. i never seen this paper before. And by God, what did he do? We got outside and he took his paper and he just threw it away in a wastebasket. For the first time in a long time, I took a paper out of the wastebasket. I see guys doing that in New York all the time. Well, I did it. I rushed over to grab and he, you know, all the people look, look at that bum, well-dressed guy. What's he stealing newspapers for? And I picked up the paper and I have brought this clipping with me. So you want to know about the fact that we're growing extinct? Uh, people have got to get used to the idea. This is the story. People have got to get used to the idea that man will someday become extinct. That's the observation of Dr. James Mears, a professor at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. We quote the professor. Uh, <clears throat> extinction is natural. It has happened before on Earth, and it will continue to happen. Extinction is relevant to the human species as well as to all plant and animal life. Man will become extinct in the future. This is a scientific fact, according to all known rules of the animal and the plant world. Well, that kind of let me down. You know, I thought he had some flash, you know, that was happening, that he was noticing signs of extinction that were beginning to set in in certain parts of Indiana, maybe, or, uh, you know, upper, upper uh, Peapack, New Jersey, or something. Extinction was beginning to set in. Now, I thought, you know, man is, uh, I have several uncles who are extinct now. Uh, so I don't know whether they're referring to that, or man in general. I mean, <laughs> so I thought, yeah, man has to accept the fact that he's going extinct. And I thought to myself, think of the stuff that's going to be left when man has departed the scene. Man has departed the scene. In fact, uh, uh, what did the other animals leave behind them when they left? Well, I saw something in the window of the store the other day. I, I couldn't believe, you know. I thought, gee, it's a great, great thing. You can buy a fossil as a, you know, as for decor. It's decor. You can buy fossil. And there it is. It's a little block. It's, you've seen those? It's a block of, uh, looks like granite or something. And it's been nicely cut in a neat little block. And it's even got a frame on it. And right in the middle of it is the skeleton of an ancient fish. And underneath it, it says, this fossil is between 3.7 million and 4.2 million years old. Genuine fossilized Ipsograntes Pisces Delacorus. And I looked at that thing. I, by the way, invented that name. You know, as I did throw Pisces in it. So I looked at the name there. And I looked at the fish, and I says, oh, that poor little guy. I mean, one day he was swimming around, and uh, and everything looked good, and then uh, something bad happened. And now he's being sold to hang on somebody's wall. Now, that's the final, the truly the final indignity, to be hung on a wall next to a television set and a Norman Rockwell print. I mean... 
existence. And so, having a bad kind of a head, I walked along down the street. I walked down the street, and I got you know I started to think about these things, and I thought, you know, gee, you know, I looked at all my fellow man. I said, Al, please. Uh, I, I, I looked at all my fellow man. I could see him from miles around. I'm walking along Fifth Avenue, and the ancient music of the Spears began to play in my head. The ancient primal cry of man attempting to express the inexpressible. The music of the Spears began to go through my head. I can hear it now. Hear it? Marching, 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 struggling, paying the bills, making the phone calls, going to lunch, doomed for eternal extinction. All of us. We shall be tiny fossils on the vast scope, the vast shale deposit of the solar system. And one day, and I hate to, I hate to bring up this kind of thing, one day, your ankle bone could be hanging in some creature's apartment as a, you know, kind of a light-hearted decor bit. Underneath it, it says, uh, early creature, late Jurassic period, Humanus Vox Papus Bubulus, North America. Or what would be their definition of North America. Quite rare. And you'd sell for what the fossil sold for. What do you think I could have bought that fossil for? Four and a half million years of evolution. Fifteen bucks. Fifteen miserable bucks. Why, it's not at all uncommon to go to a second-rate restaurant and buy two second-rate hamburgers and a bad glass of beer shell out 15 bucks. A fossil. Frozen forever. And so all you kids that are listening, you think you got the world by the you-know-what, right? Here <laughs> here with the rest of us. My God. Man has to accept the fact that he is growing extinct. And the music of the spheres continues. scratchy 78, hoping for the best and knowing damn well that it'll never happen. <laughs> Set that back. You liked that, did you? I'll set it back again. I wouldn't do something with that. <laughs> man has to accept the fact. Uh, before we go any further, would you please hit the Dubonet money button, please? It's the wine cup. They say one. there's a time in life for everything. There certainly is. Dubonet, the time is before. Yeah, all this stuff is going to be left behind. You know, I don't think we're going to leave any bones behind. I mean, fossils. Well, I'll tell you why I think that the... That's right, we're talking about fossils. Uh, which This is WOR, New York, an RKO General Station by Joey. And we have one more spot here. And uh, this is uh, for Alexis Lachine. 
And if you've been uh, fighting uh, uh, the problem of how to stay cool this summer and you've been running around trying to get your air conditioner work by hitting you with a hammer and all that stuff, why don't you try it the French way? Now, they don't have even have air conditioners in France. They just sit around and drink Beaujolais wine. That's all right. Look, you, you, there are things you can do about growing extinction. I imagine they'll come up with a serum, don't you? I think they'll do something about that. I mean, when the AMA finds out about extinction, it's even worse than cancer. Hey, that would be a great uh, that would be a great Jerry Lewis telethon. Stomp out extinction. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's a real problem, friend. <laughs> extinction is bigger than all of us. <laughs> that keeps, you know, maybe maybe we deserve it though. I'm afraid that almost every animal that gets extinct finally, when all is said and done, ask for it. I mean, let's face it, uh, those reptiles that were hanging around in those swamps when all that warm weather was around, if they had just learned how to make fur coats, they had all the time. They had 67 million years to do it in. I mean, there's no excuse for that kind of procrastination. And uh, they, they, if they had learned how to make fur coats, if they learned how to stop eating those roots from the bottom of, of swamps and learn how to eat, say, grapes and apples, they could have made it just like us. They had the same chance. They could have moved, you know, when the, when the glaciers came down, they could have learned skiing. We learned it, some of us. Uh, but they didn't. They, they, they procrastinated. Now, we're doing the same thing. We're, 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 we're fooling around. We are, you know. We're fooling around. There are signs now that extinction is approaching. Uh, you notice you're getting more headaches than you used to have. Okay. This is one of the first. One of, absolutely, it is known. Uh, there have been many, many studies made on the process of extinction ever since Darwin proposed his theories. And one of the first symptoms of approaching extinction is advancing headaches. They, they know now that many of the great reptiles in the last stages of the process of extinction before, you know, maybe millions of years, that was really the last stages, uh, began to suffer from large numbers of headaches. You know what another one is? One of the great uh, and absolute factual uh, uh, symptoms of extinction. Do you find yourself bored more than you used to? Well, you may be one of the one of the ones who may survive. You know, some of the uh, some of the reptiles did survive. The crocodile did, Al, and there are certain familial resemblances I notice. However, uh, yes, a, a thick skin, bad eyes. Uh, yes, that's all. That's all part of it. Uh, very few crocodiles, by the way, have hair either. So uh, there may be some connection there. Now, don't, uh, I'm not saying that all of man will, serve, will, will you know, will go through that extinction process, but uh, uh, what I think will happen, a few of us will survive, a few species will survive, but will evolve into something else. Like the original crocodiles were a lot bigger and meaner than the ones we've got now. But they're still around. They've been around since the days of the reptile. The armadillo is another one. He's hung in there. Now, if you've ever seen a lamp made out of an armadillo, you can understand why they survived. They are very adaptable. They can be made into lamps. They can be made into sewing baskets. 
Uh, all these things in, uh, absolutely uh, ensure their survival. Now, maybe we deserve it. I just did. You see this story? Is anybody out there going to have a birthday? I mean, uh, it, 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 this is the kind of story that that that, that <laughs> I got. I, I I clipped this thing out. You know, I thought to myself, Oh God, you know, we're really getting into some wild wild scenes these days. I'm telling you. When I say wild, it's uh, I don't know. Uh, what precedes extinction? I think what precedes extinction, among other things, is a period of uh, false prosperity, where it looks like it's getting even better. You know, they've they've seen this in many, many, uh, uh, many other uh, parts of the flora and fauna world, where it you'll see deer will suddenly become very, very plentiful, and then the whole herd will die out. You've heard about this. Deer suddenly seem to proliferate, and then they disappear. Well, I think we may be going through a scene like this. Listen to this now. I just want you to hear this. If you want to hear a sickening scene. Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Now, you think you've heard... You think you've heard... Nick, glad to see you, man. Hey, Nick, come here. We're discussing the fact that there's a headline in one of the papers, Man has to accept the fact that he is growing extinct. Yeah, mankind is now showing signs of growing extinct. And uh, one of the, they say that one of the symptoms of, of advancing extinction is more headaches. Have you had any headaches recently that you haven't had before? Well, so has Al reported this. So it's very interesting. Maybe there's something to it. Now, I want you to hear this. Nick, you've lived in the world of, of affluence, haven't you, man? Have you, uh, have, listen to this. Now, you two guys listen for a minute. We're, this is a, this is a, one of the most sickening stories of affluence in our time. Some stories of affluence are funny. Others are uh, sad. This is the kind that makes you want to fight. <laughs> I mean, you know, ooh, it's, you just want to... Listen, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. On, this happened two weeks ago. On his ninth birthday, Tommy Kaplan got a bicycle. When he turned 10, which occurred last month, he asked for a model airplane. Okay, that's reasonable. So Mr. and Mrs. J. Kaplan bought their son a green open cockpit Sopwith Pup biplane with World War I British markings in flyable condition. Do you hear what I said? They didn't buy him a model. They bought him a biplane. The $17,000 life-sized replica was flown to Fort Lauderdale from Maris, Oregon, where this man, uh, a pilot and constructor, of course, had constructed it over the past three years. Tommy, who turned 10 last Thursday, could hardly wait to get into the cockpit of the life-size single-engine plane. Golly, thanks. Wow. This is about any, all anybody got out of Tommy for a while said the pilot who had flown it all the way to or from Oregon to Fort Lauderdale to deliver for the birthday. Uh, the pilot, a guy named Hooker, flew the plane across the country in eight days. He said, it was pretty hairy going over them Rockies, uh, said Hooker, or rather around them, who flew between 500 and 1,000 feet at a top speed of 95 miles an hour. Why a plane? Why did they, and here's the question, why a plane for 10-year-old Tommy? Quote, well, we got it uh, to distract him from drawing air battles all day. 
Uh, we got them interested in snakes and reptiles, and now we have them all over the house, and we wanted to get him interested in planes again. And we just want to get his mind off all these, uh, all these snakes and stuff, Mrs. Kaplan said. Uh, Hooker said Tommy will probably get his first ride this week in the 1917 model plane, an exact copy, by the way, a full-size copy of the British fighter plane that downed German air ace Manfred von Richthofen. It's, uh, he was downed by a Sopwith camel. Uh, Tommy's father, a sales consultant from Pompano Beach, uh, bought the plane court, uh, quote, as a uh, sort of a glorified uh, conversation uh, piece. Uh, I thought maybe Tommy might enjoy it. He may find a little use for it, uh, perhaps. Uh, we've been a little interested from time to time in planes. Uh, Tommy draws them all the time. But when uh, Tommy uh, uh, said he wanted a model plane, I thought we'd get him a really interesting one. I'll just let that soak in, friends. Ten years old, they have given him a full-size World War I Sopwith Camel. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but <laughs> that's about as, first of all, that's about as useless a gift as one could conceive. Now, maybe you're not aware. Yeah, isn't that a fantastic story of, of affluence? Uh, I'll give you some, some facts about that, because as a pilot, I'm speaking here now as a, as a licensed pilot, flying a plane like a Sopwith Camel requires not only uh, a lot of hours as a legitimate flyer and pilot, it requires specialized training. In fact, if you took your average 707 pilot or 747 pilot and asked him to fly a Sopwith Camel, he would have to be instructed in that baby for probably a month before he would dare to, uh, to even take that off the ground. Now, why is this? Well, for one thing, the type of engine this thing had in it causes a fantastic amount of torque makes it a very, very dangerous airplane. In fact, the Sopwith Camel was considered by most pilots in World War I as, as the true pilot killer of uh, the so-called fast, uh, maneuverable fighters of that period. A mean one. Uh, in fact, the only guy that I know who ever had anything to do with Sopwith Camels was Ed Fitzgerald of Ed and Pegeen. That Ed flew a Sopwith Camel. He was a pilot, you know, in World War I. How many people know that? had thousands of hours over uh, the enemy lines, and Ed flew a Sopwith camel from time to time, and he said every time that he would approach a Sopwith camel, he would silently cross himself, in spite of the fact he was certainly a non-practicing religionist at the time. <laughs> this is an airplane that is a real killer. It's like, uh, it's like what it is, is like going out and buying a kid. He says, you know, he got kind of interested in... Uh, in the tropical fish, and uh, and the, he asked us if we'd buy him a new tropical fish for for his birthday. So we figured we'd get him a good one. And they go out and they get him a 17 foot killer white shark. Uh, <laughs> oh man! And it's only seventeen thousand five hundred dollars. What the hell? Easy come, easy go. There's a lot more where that came from, but. Uh, that, that, that to me is a fantastic example. And here's, here's the kid. Oh, incidentally, the kid uh, had a very great line about it when, when, uh, when he, got, uh, when he, when he uh, was given the airplane. Instead of simply saying, you know, he was flipping about it, uh, the kid looked at it and said, uh, what am I going to do with that? 
which probably was the most sensible thing said all day long. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this reminds me of the Roman Empire. It really does. Uh, stories of the Roman Empire. You know, Caligula getting a horse elected to the Senate. And all that kind of stuff. Although we have done that several times inadvertently. Not the whole horse. No, 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 no. Uh, I mean, it's a fact. I'm sorry. I just couldn't resist that. Just, it just came off, Nick. I'm sorry. But uh, I, I, uh, I have seen things like that. Like, like one of the, one of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the totally in, in, completely ridiculous gift. Have you ever found yourself around where a totally ridiculous gift was given to somebody? I, I luckily have not done it yet. I have not made that mistake. But I was at a at a little ceremony one time that uh, that caused a little commotion later. Two separate occasions, the same guy. Uh, I, I, I will submit to you that this guy's father probably has a long history of cuckoo bird uh, things of this type. But uh, I, I went to a birthday party out in Bucks County a few years ago. So, and... Uh, the guy, the guy was a, a New York ad executive. That somehow guys that are involved in the ad world or sales consultant world have a curious, deep streak of unreality that runs through them. Do you agree with this, Nick? I don't know. It, it does not surprise me that Haldeman and Ehrlichman were from an ad agency. It does not at all surprise me. I've dealt with these guys all my adult life, and let me tell you. <laughs> it isn't that they're, it's, it's a curious morality, is all I got to say, that uh, finally develops. And it's an imperious one, too, yet. Oh, yeah. Oh, VP over at the Y&R is just this short of the Shah of Iran. Yeah, just a little bit short, but not much, remember, not much. In some ways, even superior, uh, certainly to his deadly venom, he's superior. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I... I uh, I'm with this uh, with this guy. He says, "Hey, come on out, Shep." He said, "I'm giving Louise a great gift. Uh, we're gonna have a birthday party, and it's a real surprise." And I said, "Oh yeah, give Louise a surprise." Huh? And he said, "Yeah, yeah." Now I knew Louise. Louise was uh, uh, later the divorce proved it. Louise was a lady <laughs> that had a lot more going for her than Chuck thought, <laughs> and 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 he treated her like his little girl. Uh, that's one of the worst types of, of marital relationships, and I've known several of this type, where the, where the wife, who has stainless steel fangs, is somehow transmuted in the guy's mind to be little Barbie. You know, somehow he always sees her as this 11-year-old girl that he once met on the playground. It ain't the same anymore. She has gone her way, and he has not observed this. Well, or he prefers not to. Let's put it, that's even better. So... He says, I got this great gift for Louise. And I said, uh, well, you know, I hate to give birthday parties. not my thing. And I said, well, gee, gee. Oh, come on. He said, gee whiz, you know, Arnie's going to be there. And, oh, yeah. He starts laying this. Come on. Gee, don't be a party pooper. Come on. Wow. And, you know, we are everybody. After all, it's Louise's birthday. I said, all right, all right. I'll come out there. So the weekend comes. I had this faint you see, I think we're, we're also creatures of instinct. I think we have faint, instinctual warning bells that go off inside of our gut when we're about to embark on something that, you know, is a, we do. We're, we've got instincts. Almost everybody knows when trouble's approaching him. Now, he may or may not uh, do anything about it, or he may or may not even want to recognize it, but he knows it. 
There's a little faint thing that says, It's coming! It's on its way! They're making the phone calls now! <laughs> the orders are being cut! Well, this is, a, this is a deep thing. And I had this inkling right away. I got in the car, you know, and I'm going to go out to Fox County. And uh, it is a well-known fact among pilots that when a disaster occurs, it is not the result of one thing that went wrong. This is why the public is always confused about air disasters. What did they do wrong? It is a series of things. In fact, it begins well before the actual disaster with something that is almost always insignificant, right? Okay, I got in the car. I'm in Manhattan, right? I got in the car. Turned the switch in the in the in the key, and my battery was dead. Uh huh. I should have known. But I got out of the car, and I walked around. I got mad. I opened the hood up. And I looked at it, and sure enough, the battery was still in there, and it was deader than you know what. I mean, I, there's a phrase that's somewhat vulgar. I will not bring it in to this discussion. However, you know what I'm talking about, and that really bugs you. So, you know, so I go to the guy. The car was parked in the garage, and I hollered at the guy. I said, hey, uh, you guys got a, 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 a jumper or something around here? I get the car started. Okay. This is my period. This is the period of advancing disaster, right? So what would be the answer? Would it be, yeah, we got a jumper. We're going to start it for you right away. Like hell. He says, we ain't got no jumper, have we, Stan? So upstairs I hear no, Fred stole it. No jumper. Now, so I said, "What am I going to do? My car's my car's here. I won't get. I can't get it started." So the guy in the garage, typical Manhattan garage, looks up from his Marvel comic book and says the following: "Well, I guess you're going to have to push it, buddy." Okay, push it. Have you ever tried to push a car? in a garage and get it started by yourself, you alone, a high-compression engine, like hell. So I said, any of you guys want to help? Well, of course, this caused a great discussion among the guys in the garage, and finally it was decided that they would help only as long as it didn't take them over two minutes. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Well, if it won't start right away, we can't because we've got to watch the desk here. So they came down. And the three of us pushed this car, and we got it running. You know, it started. I thought, oh, my God, it started. It's great. The car is going. Now I am going to recoup the disaster. So I drive out, drive down 7th Avenue. Remember, I'm going to Bucks County. So I drive all the way down to the Holland Tunnel. And as I drive, it's Sunday. I figure, you know, no problem getting through the Holland Tunnel. I drive into the Holland Tunnel, and by George, I'm great, Scott. I am halfway through the Holland Tunnel, and I'm going to tell you, it, it happened, good morning, George, it happened, it happened right in front of me. I, I, it was a, I saw it happening. I absolutely saw it happening. The car ahead of me started to wobble. Now, I'm in the tunnel, remember. I'm going through, and I'm heading towards Jersey, and there's a car behind me. There's a car behind him. There's a car behind him. There's a car behind him. As you know, there's a whole line of cars always going through the tunnel. I'm looking ahead, and there's this old Chevy ahead of me, and I see the back end start to wave back and forth, left and right. It's waving. I thought, oh my God, something's happened to that car. And sure enough, the left rear wheel fell off the car, and he skidded to a stop. And there I am directly behind him. 
All the horns started to honk behind me, and we're stopped. Forty-five minutes later, the yellow truck has towed him out, and I'm now on the other side of the lake. I'm on the other side of the, uh, of the Holland Tunnel, and I'm heading towards the Jersey Turnpike. Well, little things happen like that. By now, I'm hot. I'm mad. I stop for a Coke. I drive into the Howard Johnson. I bring the Coke out. Uh, I'm driving in my car. It's in one of these plastic cups, and I'm going to drink the Coke as I drive the car on the turnpike, and the cup's got a leak in it. It's dribbling all over my pants. <laughs> I wind up. I throw it out the window. I, you know, the way the luck was going that day, I'm surprised the state cop didn't come up and say, all right, pull it over, litter bug, get over there, you bum. Nope, I got away with that one. I, I rarely do things like this, but I was getting so bugged that I just couldn't do anything more. You know, it was dripping all over me. So I finally got to Chuck's house. And here everybody's standing around. Everybody's wearing their, their sport coats. It's sort of a vaguely formal party. You go out to these Bucks County Revolutionary War uh, restored farmhouse type affairs. I avoid those like I avoid uh, cold sores. I, I just, it's a bad scene. I get out there and everybody's walking around the punch bowl and looking very, looking kind of, you know, all right, it's Sunday afternoon and, and they're saying things and they're talking and they're walking around. Nobody's really making contact. And suddenly Chuck gets up on the table out there in the yard and says, da-da, you know, like they do in the commercial, da-da. All right, let's all sing happy birthday to Louise. And Louise came out of the house, and she had this sort of blank look. How do you react when people sing happy birthday to you? You know, you say half, a half-baked, <laughs> you know, a grin. You sing it, what do you do? You stand. So everybody's singing happy birthday, dear Louise. But I'd say three-quarters of the crowd didn't even know who the hell she was. They were just there because they were invited and so they're singing to Louise, and finally the song is over, and everybody cheers, everybody toasts Louise in that awful punch. And then Chuck laid the gift upon Louise. He said, all right, gang, I told all of you guys that we're, we're going to have a real special gift for Louise today. <laughs> and by George, we really have, Louise. Uh, Louise, I, 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 I got a gift for you. And uh, I've been working on this gift now for six months, Louise, and I really know you're going to love it. It's out in the barn. What the hell out in the barn? It's out in the barn. Now you know why I've been keeping you out of the barn for the last week. <laughs> all right, King, let's go. We all go out in the barn. You know, everybody walks out over the hedges and over the pansy beds. And, uh, you know, I figure it's going to be something really great. Maybe, a, you know, maybe a quarter horse. Uh, you know, I'm... Who knows, you know, some Appaloosa, something great, you know, in the barn. He opens the doors, and there's, everybody peers in. Something in the gloom in there, but it's big, you know. It's, it's kind of in the, in, the, in the shade in there. And he says, surprise, surprise, Louise, surprise. I could see Louise's face. The face, it's just a funny look on her face. You know, she's sort of half smiling, like she has to pretend she likes it. But you could see it just showing out of her. Not again. He's done it again, that idiot. We all walk in the barn, and we're now standing around a gigantic rack-like affair. Had all kinds of wires-like on it and uh, strings attaching to it. It was about eight feet tall, and it was made out of wood, and it was gigantic. Practically filled the whole damn barn. And I couldn't help it. Three or four guys at once says, well, what is it? What is it? 
And Chuck says, don't you see what that is? That's a Swedish rug loom. A full-size Swedish rug loom, which I ordered from Sweden. Uh, Louise and I were in Sweden two years ago. We went to this rug factory, and she said, gee, look how interesting it is they make rugs. It would be kind of fun to try that once. And I got her. He bought her a full-size Swedish rug loom. And I could see Louise had about as much interest in making handmade Swedish loomed rugs as she had in hatching turkey eggs by sitting on them. Well, the afternoon wore on. People drifted out. Some guys began to drink out of bottles they kept in their own cars. Other guys sort of drifted into the hedges with girls. And that was the end of that afternoon's party. About two weeks later, that ain't the end of the story, though. Two weeks later, I get a call from Chuck. And Chuck says, hey, Shep. I said, yes, Chuck. Big silence on the phone. I said, what's up? Because I could tell in his voice it was his tremulous. He's called you? I said, says, who, what? Chuck, it's 2.30 in the morning. He says, Louise called you. Has she called? I said, no, Chuck, Louise hasn't called me. Why should Louise call me? Is there something wrong, Chuck? Oh, no, no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Nothing. I just uh, wondered if Louise called you. <laughs> I said, Chuck, it's 2.30 in the morning. Why should Louise call me at 2.30 in the morning? I have never gotten a call ever in my whole life from Louise. <laughs> I'm just checking. I want to see. <laughs> uh, I just want to see. I said, Chuck, is there something wrong? He said, yeah, there is. I said, what's up, Chuck? Well, I came home from bowling tonight, and there was a note on the table that said Louise had left. She said, I can't take it anymore. I'm going. And the note said, you know where I've gone. I said, why call me? I don't... Why me? Did you have an idea that Louise... And me? And she can't... What the hell is this? I, I don't... No, not, not, not me, Chuck. Not me. Somebody else. <laughs> not me, Chuck. He said, well, if I find out that Louise came into your place, I'm going to tell you this. There's going to be real trouble over this. It's going to hit the fan. I said, Chuck, look, you're going to have to believe me, Dad. I had nothing to do with it. I don't know anything about this thing. And it's the first time I heard of it. He said, well, that's what you say. And he hung up. I have never heard another word from that son of a gun. I've never seen him. I don't know whatever happened to Louise. I have the slightest intention of finding out. And if they're listening tonight, the hell with both of you. That's all I got to say. And you can do what you want to do with that Swedish hand-woven rug loan, which is probably what you told Chuck anyway, Louise. And I have a secret suspicion that that fantastic, quote, surprise was the camel's straw. It popped Louise's back. It was much more than an idle coincidence.